0: Well, we are on the uh, second part of our um, new series on faith in a new world, and um, and we just started last week by talking about how, you know, what one of the things Ezra makes very clear is that God is in control of everything. You know, and that's an that's an easy thing to say. It's you know people say it all the time, but then for some reason when we start living the day-to-day, we can easily forget it. You know, um, we've just come through a year where um, it's kind of started out kind of like any other year. And then you started hearing like little whispers and rumors about about a virus that was happening over in China. And then you started to hear more and more about how people were very concerned about it and, and then all of a sudden, you know, this almost in, you know, hitting us in March was this, for, our, for most of us, unless you're old enough to have lived through the Spanish flu, I'm not looking at anybody in particular, um, but we, it's unprecedented. We've never been through anything like this. And you add to that, it was a, it was a presidential election year, it was a year full of uh, different kinds of protests and riots. And even though in Hawaii, you know, we're more or less insulated from that, it still makes us think. And we sometimes start to become concerned or start to become worried because it's almost like we've said, yeah, sure, God, you were in control of Cyrus, but you certainly aren't in control of this situation. You certainly can't be somehow using any of this for anything. This, this must be really a surprise to you. And so it's, it's one of those simple things that we say is true, but we forget or we don't want to let it really affect our lives. How should I live if I believe God is Lord of all? Well, today we're kind of moving to the next section. We're moving to this next area and um, where the, the exiles have returned. But before we get there, you know, uh, I, just to kind of help us get our own context kind of the way it should be, um, you know, one of the things that we live in, is you know, we live in a, in a ready-made world. Um, you know, most of the stuff we have is, is made for us. We... we we don't, you know, I mean, I, I tried and I've just ran out of time to be able to go any farther, but I tried to, uh, to get farther and farther along in the coffee, you know, coffee making. So, I, you know, I bought beans, I bought a grinder, I bought, um, you know, all these other um, things. Um, I, I even bought a roaster. I've never actually roasted the beans yet. And eventually, someday, um, probably never, I would love to grow my own coffee, right? Because I want to be there from the very beginning of it all, right? Well, this, this week, I, at the beginning of the pandemic, when we were really shut down, I had a little too much time on my hands, and I, I had the noodle dream. The noodle dream is I wanted to you know, learn how to make my own pasta and ramen noodles. And so I ordered a pasta maker, and it never came in so then I canceled the order and then, you know, around December I ordered it again and so finally it came in this week and so, you know, now it's like, okay, let me go look into all that it takes to make pasta how it all goes into to make ramen, because, you know, I've never done that before I, I, don't, I don't know the ingredients and plus I want to try to make it good but, but healthy and so, you know I'm, I'm going to be just kind of doing that in the next, you know, you know, few few weeks, few months. But before that, I never thought about that. You know, I just thought like, you know, you go to the restaurant and the food's there. It's ready. It's ready made. And I'm fortunate. I don't have to do this. I'm not being, you know, I'm not, I don't have to grow my own coffee. I'm doing it because I want to and I have time and, and you know, there's, It's a choice to be made. But so much of what we have is just made for us. It's just there. It's delivered. And if we were ever in a situation where we had to start making things from, as they say, scratch, we would be in trouble. A lot of us would be in trouble. Because we don't know how to make things. We don't know how to build things. You know, we say like, you know, oh, I, I, I made spaghetti. What do you actually do? I've only had spaghetti made for me once where the sauce was like the person like had all these fresh ingredients and the thing took like 12 hours. It's crazy. Because when we say we made spaghetti, open the jar add a few things, right? I mean, some of you may be purists and you go and you do everything from scratch, but, but most of we don't. Even when we say we make something, we don't know how to make stuff. We don't know how to build things necessarily. So much of what we get give is given to us. Now, some of you, you know, that's what you do for a living. You are you're builders, you're contractors, you're carpenters. You know. But most of us, it's just not that way. And even if it were that way, there's, even if you, that is your profession, there's other things in your life that that you don't, you don't build. You don't know how to make them. You just know how to use it. Nothing wrong with that. You know, it's the society we live in. It's only going to become wrong as if we ever have to and then we don't know how to. Hopefully you are never, you know, lost in the, in the wilderness and you need to make a fire and... You know, you don't have a lighter or matches. So it's not that it's a bad thing. It's just just a thing. It's just what we are. It's who we are. Well, think about this. The exiles, they're returning. They've been living in one of the more technologically advanced cultures in Babylon. And remember, even though it talks about them being captives and they would rather you know, be somewhere else and, you know, you don't want to be anybody's captives, they're still benefiting from being there. And, sure, they're doing some things in Babylon that might have been similar to what they were doing in Jerusalem, but they're also doing a lot of different things. And they're, doing, they're not able to do things that they might have done before. And so now they're returning. They're returning to Jerusalem. And they know that, that they're going to be rebuilding the city. But again, a lot of them have, you know, the, if, if they remember Jerusalem, they don't remember building Jerusalem. Jerusalem was already there. They don't remember building the temple. The temple had already been there. If they can remember it, all they remember is seeing it or going to it. They don't know about building it. And so they're, they're, they're coming back. And, and in some ways, that's an advantage. In some ways, there's an advantage to not being kind of locked into how it was before. And we're going to see that when we look at the text. So we look in Ezra chapter 3, and it says, When the seventh month came... And the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, with his fellow priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Sheotiel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God." They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the land, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the Feast of Booths as it is written and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required and after that the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and all the appointed feasts of the Lord and the offerings of everyone who made a free will offering to the Lord. So they come back and we don't know the time frame. We know it's probably just a matter of a few days. But they come back, and they come back in the seventh month. It says the seventh month. And those of you who come on Wednesday nights to our Bible studies or join us online, um, you know, we talked about why that's an important month in the Jewish calendar. That's actually where the, the new year technically begins. It's, it's one of the most important um, months in their religious calendar, in their seasonal calendar, everything. And so it's not a coincidence that, that it's the seventh month, and it's not, a it's not just an added detail that, it, that it's in there. It's, it's, it's important. And it says that the children of Israel in the towns, and then they gathered as one man in Jerusalem. The faithful are returning. This faith now in a new world, what's the first thing they do? Unite. They unite as the people of God. They come together as one man, as it says, and they focus on the worship of God. This is where it's going to begin unity, worship. They unite as one man, and they come together to worship God. And so you can imagine as they've come back to this, to to this city. They come back to Jerusalem. Remember, it's been, it was destroyed 70 years prior. And it's, you know, probably been different people have probably come and, you know, taken things from it, taken stones to use it for their own buildings, their own houses. So there's, there's not much left. It's, but there's a place. And there's a place where they 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 know the altar was and they go to that place and they rebuild the altar and notice it says they rebuilt the altar as it is written in the law of Moses one of the things they want to do is they don't want to just come back and worship they want to worship the way that that they they worshiped way back in the time of Moses you know, anywhere from 800 to 1,000 years earlier. They want to they reconnect. Remember, in these 70 years of exile, they haven't been able to have sacrifices, not in the way that it's described in, in, in the books of the law. They couldn't do it. And now they're coming back, and now they're able to do it, and they're going to do it according to the book of law, because all that they had all that they had in the time of the Babylonian exile was the law and they were doing everything they could to follow the ethical parts of the law they were doing everything they could to follow the diet they were doing everything they could to follow all the, the different practices in terms of how you treated one another and how you you know lived in your families and all this stuff so they did all of that but now they get to do this, this, this other part that's been missing for 70 years and remember almost all of them had never done this before. They had read about it. They had heard about it. Some of the older people might have remembered, but remember, they were children last time there was a sacrifice in Jerusalem. So they come back, and they want to do it according to the law of Moses. And this means a lot of things, but... But the most important thing is that they build this this stone altar. And it's pretty big. I mean, they're going to be sacrificing animals on it. So it's not going to be tiny. It's going to be pretty big. And one of the things that they're going to do, according to the law of Moses, is they're not going to use, they're not going to shape stones. They're not going to cut stones and fit them so they look all kind of neat. They're going to go get stones from the field as they are. And they're going to do as Moses had said in Exodus. They're going to bring those stones together and just like we see walls around here that are some, sometimes made in that style, they're going to fit those stones together. Can I imagine this? These people have traveled for months. They've heard about this. They've, they've taught it. They've read about it. Some of them for their entire lives never seen it. And now here they are in this place that probably during the day looks pretty depressing. It's the city. It's been destroyed. But they've put this altar there. And the fire is going to burn. And it's going to burn day and night. And they're standing there Pretty much out in nature. Nothing distracting them. Totally focused on the worship of God. I got to believe that was really powerful. As beautiful as the temple was. And God told you know, them to build the temple, so it wasn't disobedience. But as beautiful as the temple was, the temple had become a distraction from what mattered most. It's not the temple's fault. It's not God's fault. It's not the people who built it's fault. It's the people who decided that the temple was really more important than the worship. i think that's something that doesn't go away that that mistake it doesn't go away people are somehow always drawn more towards what they can they can see and touch than they are to to god who who you know they don't necessarily have any kind of something tangible and 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 then they be, can begin to to even if they do get something tangible, they can begin to th- treat the tangible thing more like God and forget about God. And you go, yeah, I know people who do that. Well, if we're honest, we all do it. I think one of the things that, that this past year has, should have taught us is that so much of, we, of what we thought was so important about church wasn't necessary. doesn't mean it was bad, but it wasn't necessary, and in fact, it was distracting. We had so many things that distracted us from really knowing God's Word. We had so many things that distracted us from developing real healthy relationships with one another. So many distractions. Church had become a place to go. It had become services to attend, programs to participate in. But was it the heart? At the heart of it, was it was it worship was it god's love was it community is is that the thing we valued most about being in being a church is that the thing that that we thought like you know this is the thing we cannot live without and it's one of those to me like wonderful things in a terrible time that I think for some of you over the past, you know, 9, 10, 11 months, you've been more in the Word of God than you have been ever in your life. And that's not a bad thing. I think because of this, I know our our deacons, our deacons have visited more people at their homes more often this past year than in any year before when I was here. I don't know. I can't speak to what happened before that. I can only speak to when I'm here. And I know many of you are more intentional about being concerned about people, whether they're in your family or people in the church. You're concerned about them. You reach out to them. You connect with them. It's not a bad thing. Even what we do on Sunday morning, my, my, if my wife had her way, we would do even less. But it's trying to just focus everything we do on just worship and, and hearing God's Word. So many things that are intended to be good, so many things that, that help us Can sometimes be distractions. Sometimes we can become so busy doing church that we are not no longer being the church. It it sounds like, you know, like oh, you know, yeah, that's all well and good, and that sounds good, and I and I hear people talk, you know, I hear pastors say this, and I hear other people say this, but you know, it's just words. I hope it's not just words for you. I hope that, that when you became a Christian, that you were changed in such a way that you no longer just lived for yourself. I hope that even though you might not have understood it, that the Spirit of God came into your life and the Spirit of God in your life wants to connect with the Spirit of God in other believers' lives. That it's not just, oh yeah, if it happens, it happens. But it's a deep longing desire to connect, to be part of the community of faith. I hope. Because if so, then I think this past year has has taught us in a positive and negative way. In the negative way, it's taught us how much we miss it how much we miss being able to be physically together. But it's also taught us in a positive way where we will say, we will not let a pandemic, we will not let government shutdowns, we will not let any of that prevent us from being the church. We will not let it prevent us from developing community, from caring about one another, from loving one another. We're not just going to go sit in our homes by ourselves because that's what we're told to do to show love for one another. No, if I have to sit in my home, I'm going to find a way to connect with my brothers and sisters in Christ. It's getting back to that very simple thing. And what we find here is that's what they're doing. They're getting back to just The essence, this worship, this altar, just there in this beautiful place. We read on, it says, From the first day of the seventh month they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. So they start right. They get their, they, they get their focus right. They get their hearts right. But they know that eventually they're going to, to, to build this temple. They're going to rebuild the temple and they're going to rebuild this, this foundation. And so what we see here is, again, do they know how to do this? Well, thankfully, they have people that, that are able to do it. They're able to, to get the material that they need, partly because, because Cyrus had given them this grant that allowed them to do it. And the picture shouldn't be lost. The picture shouldn't be lost. That the faithful, that their focus is on this strong foundation. They have to get the foundation right. I don't think they had these discussions. I hope not. But I hope, you know, somebody didn't say like, you know, yeah, the foundation would be great, but you know what I really thought was cool about the old temple was they had that really cool front door. Can we just build the door first and then do the foundation later? Because the door was pretty awesome. Of course not. They do the foundation. They, they, they make sure that that's right. Because nothing else will be right if the foundation is wrong. Oh, it can look right for a little while. I don't know if you've ever lived in a house that had, you know, a bad foundation. Those of us from north-central Texas who ever lived there for any period of time know the horrors of bad foundations. But if the foundation's wrong, you can make a house look good for a while. It can look new. It can look shiny. But if, if the foundation is wrong, eventually uh, there's going to be problems. And if it's wrong enough, pretty soon your house is pretty much ruined. They see the foundation. They go and build the foundation. But Understand what was said earlier. They start doing these burnt offerings and they keep doing them. They start observing all the festivals. They keep doing it. It wasn't, oh, we're going to build a foundation, so let's suspend all that worship stuff for a while. Let's get the foundation, then we'll get back to the worship stuff. No. This worship, this offerings to God, reestablished first That's more important than even the foundation. So they go back and they start to develop this foundation. You know, we've talked about this at this church for about two or three years now, about, you know, what is a healthy church? And again, on... It's usually on the back. This week there's actually a separate sheet in there that that lists, you know, from Romans twelve the the characteristics of a healthy church. And we've talked about how a healthy church is a is a healthy community of disciples. And so if we if we want to think about you know the foundation, of course we know like, you know, Jesus Christ, we know his word is the foundation in in that sense. But we also know that if we are not what a church is, it doesn't matter what we build. It doesn't matter what programs or services or anything that we start. It doesn't matter what our campus looks like. It doesn't matter what our live stream does. It doesn't matter how much tech we have. We have to get that foundation established. We have to get it right. And again, we, you know, as, as we start to think about, okay, as we move forward into, the, into this year, as more and more people, you know, start getting vaccinated or feel comfortable coming back to church, are we going to just rush to start up all those hundreds of things that we did before? Or are we going to focus? Focus on what's most important. If anything that's happening at this church is making it harder for you to be a disciple of Christ, making it harder for you to be in His Word, making it harder for you to, to develop healthy relationships with one another. If anything at this church, no matter how wonderful it might seem, is doing that, it's a distraction. I would hope that if we establish a foundation of being a healthy community, if we establish a foundation of being disciples of Christ that everything else that we build will come from that. Therefore, it won't be a distraction. It'll just enhance. It'll just help. It'll facilitate. That's what I hope. But we've got to get the foundation right. We have to find our identity is in Jesus Christ. And what that means is this this continued commitment, and I can't say it enough, this continued commitment to discipleship. Nobody has graduated from Jesus Christ High School yet. You are still working on your education. But there's too many Christians who think they have graduated. They think they have their degree in discipleship. I no longer have to learn. I no longer have to grow. And if you're wondering, if you're one of those people, ask yourself this When is the last time God's word impacted your life in such a way that you knew you were significantly changed more into being like Christ? When was the last time? Was it this morning? Was it yesterday? Was it last year? Was it 10 years ago? Why not? If we're really growing, if we're really growing in the Lord, there should be noticeable change in who we are over time. It shouldn't be we're the same old person, no matter how good we think we are. We're the same person we were 20 years ago. One of the things my dad used to say when you know used as an illustration for this point he would say you know if if he saw a married couple who said oh we love each other as much as we did the day we were married he said that would be sad to me he would hope in the years of marriage the love has grown that it's not the same But for some reason, so many of us think we've graduated. We no longer have to be serious about Bible study. We were serious and then we got our degree, so now we can move on. We're professionals now. No. Discipleship is lifelong. Until you know everything there is to know about the infinite God, you keep learning which is one of the things I look forward to, by the way, in heaven. I don't look forward to heaven thinking I will have as much knowledge as God. Because first of all, even though my head's kind of big, it ain't that big. I look forward to thinking that I get to spend eternity learning more and more about the infinite God. I get to spend eternity becoming more and more like the infinite God as I learn who He is. Discipleship and in being a true community. We're not monks, independent learners, you know, off on our own. We come together, we grow together. We have to interact. We have to see our beliefs in action. We have to help one another. It's the foundation. And it's work that we keep doing. You know, they have the advantage. Once they finish the foundation of the temple, they're done. They don't have to go back and Keep building the foundation. Oh, I'm sure they'll have to repair it from time to time. But their work is done. In the church, it's ongoing. It then says Now in the second year, after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who came to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmio and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Hanadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. Now you might go like, why you know, if God is God and he can do all these miracles, why, why didn't he protect his temple? Or why didn't he just rebuild it? He's God. He could do that. But what we find is, again, this isn't how God usually works. God doesn't usually work by supernaturally, miraculously doing things. God certainly does that. The Bible is full of those kind of things and some people can talk about that from their own lives. But the normal way God works, the typical way God works, is He works through people. And here we see the leaders. And what are the leaders doing? The leaders are organizing and the leaders are delegating. Zerubbabel is probably... The kind of person who didn't know how to build stuff, but that wasn't his job. His job was to find the people who know how to build stuff and get them together and organize them. You go, well that doesn't sound you know doesn't sound like God how you know that just sounds like Work, yeah, that's exactly what it is. If you don't know that work, that when it's God's work, that it is God working through you, then you're missing the point of work. You've got the wrong focus, the wrong motivation. The leaders are leading, they're planning, they're organizing, they're delegating, and the faithful, they're doing it. They're executing, they're obeying. He's working through the people. And I've said this before, I think it's worth noting every time I come to this point, that God doing something himself is far easier for God than him using us. It would, we don't appreciate how great of a miracle it is when God accomplishes his work through us. Because, again, he could do it so much better by himself. But he works through his people, and that's what he's doing here. There's no miracle building. There's not stones falling from the sky, perfectly shaped the way they're supposed to be to go in place. It's organization. It's delegation. It's obedience. God working through people. And then it says in verse 10, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, The priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the direction of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. So they lay this foundation. And then they celebrate. Even their celebration is connecting to their past. When it says they sang responsively, it's this thing where like one side would sing and the other side would respond. And this was something that was, was connected back to something that, that King David had instituted. So they're, they're connecting to their past. They're connecting to how, how they related to God in their best of days. And we see them praising God. And they're praising God for the work He allowed them to do. See, this is an important balance. Yes, God works through you. But there's a tendency sometimes when God works through us to think that we're just the ones working. And we start to think it's just us, it's not God. And so this praise of for God, that He allowed them to do the work. It was God who, who allowed them. It's, it talks about how in chapters 1 and 2, it talks about how these are the ones that God stirred their hearts to return. And they, they, they want to keep that in mind. It's one of the reasons we worship. We worship God because He's worthy of worship. We worship God because it's who we are. It should be part of what it means to, to be His children. But we also worship God to remind ourselves that it is not us. That it is God working through us. And then you have that weird thing where it says the old dude started crying. They started weeping. Now, I, um, when I first, you know, read this long, long, long time ago, I used to think like, oh, they were comparing the old temple, the Solomon temple, which was supposed to be awesome and beautiful, to the, to the new temple. But if you think about it, that's not much of, a, they can't really compare because the new temple hasn't been built yet. They've only seen the foundation. And none of those who are weeping saw the old temple when it was just a foundation. It had been built hundreds of years before. Now, perhaps they're comparing foundations and going, man, that, that old foundation was way better than the new foundation. I don't know. I think that's kind of hard just to, to kind of put that out there. But then you're thinking, that, well, so why are they weeping? And the text doesn't really tell us. The text doesn't give us like a clear indication of why they're weeping. But I can think of some possibilities. I could think that, that the reality of the loss of the first temple hits them when they see this foundation. Remember, before, it had been just, it was gone. It was ruined. They, they really couldn't, you know, they, and they, maybe they remembered like, oh, yeah, yeah, kind of over here. This is what, you know, it looked like. Or I think, you know, on this side was, was you know, one of the porticos or something like that. They might have thought that, but, but now, with the foundation, they can visualize it. And they can see what they lost. And they weep. It doesn't tell us. The text doesn't even tell us if they're weeping for lack of faith or they're weeping because of faith. It doesn't tell us. It just feels it's important to tell us that they're weeping. But I think it was important for these people. remember, it says they're old. But 70 years have passed. When they saw the temple, they were young. And some of them were probably children. But what's important for them to do, and I think this is why this weeping is so important, is to come to grips with, yes, God has brought us back. Yes, we can be faithful in a new world. Yes, we can restore those things that are most important. But it will never be exactly the same. The problem, unfortunately, the church has so many times is that it wants things to be exactly the same as it was before. And it can be all kinds of things. And by the way, it's a losing battle to keep things exactly the same. How do I know that? I always, whenever I have these conversations with people and they talk about how they wish things were like they were before and I get to the point of it's always a losing battle, my question to them is, how many of you read the Bible in Greek? Anybody? I do. But anybody else? How many of you are going to come to church dressed the way they did in the first century? How many of you are no longer even going to come to a building like this, but we're going to go meet in people's homes? How many of you are going to sing atonal music? How many of you are willing to stand while I get to sit down and teach you? That one is like, nope, that's it, deal breaker. The thing is that things are always changing. But what we have to what we have to get from this is there are certain things that can never change. That altar made of field stones, that worship, that doesn't change. But what does change? A lot of other things that aren't nearly as important as we think they are. As we come back to being the church gathered again physically, there will be some things that I hope are incredibly familiar. And I hope they're the things that matter most. But we also have to get ready because there's going to be things that are different. There are going to be things that we cannot bring back they're never going to be exactly like they were before. And I'm not telling you whether that's a good or bad thing. I'm just telling you it's a thing. And we need to be ready. But overall, we need to be rejoicing that the God who we love, the God who is faithful, the faith that we can have in this God before the pandemic during the pandemic, will still be there. We can still be His church in every situation. That's our call. And I think now, our commitment needs to really be on focusing on those things that matter most, the foundational work of being the church. Let's pray.